Sit here to preach. Well, we, we're going to move the desk stand because we have no microphone over there. Well, just put the microphone. Well, I suppose, I suppose we could. Hold on. It's on yet? Test it. It is on.
set the mic up here and just, just let it sit for a minute. Yeah, just put it on the thing there. I'll put it in there for you. Now we got to put you back in the chair. Testing, good. I just turned it off to save battery until we get it all set here because the battery on this thing.
Rachel, can you hear me through the microphone? Can you hear me there? Can you hear me? Is it coming through pretty well or does it need to be even closer to the person speaking? Well, that's about as much as I can get. Okay, I'm going to leave it on at this point. We have to remember to turn it off.
Good morning. Good to see you all here on this wet Sunday morning. It is, it is humid. Did you get any rain? We, uh, we got the storm last night, and um, as per usual, we heard all of our neighbors' generators kick on, so they all lost power. But for whatever reason, the Lord is gracious to us, and we're, we're, we're alone on an island, and we almost never lose power. So... Uh, Let's, let's look at our, at our announcements. Offering, of course, in the offering box. Andrea's number. The days of praise and acts and facts are here. Acts and facts looks like this this month. Big diamond on the front. Um, we're going to get back on, on track, looks like. So next communion dinner will be August the 1st. So that's not this Next, is that that's this next Sunday? Is it? What happened to July? See, if you go on vacation, you just you just lose it. <clears throat> Take note of our church praying, many needs there, and uh, anything else that I've forgotten this morning, missed. How was camp? We missed the report. Good. See, Phil made it back. <laughs> you didn't wear that bullseye t-shirt that I got you? <laughs> All right. Our scripture for meditation then is in Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Read verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, 1868.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless us this morning. George, would you lead us? Thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for a beautiful day in which we're able to gather in your name. But it's far more beautiful, Lord, when we consider the one who has come to earth to be our Savior and the one who has granted us the grace and mercy of eternal life. We pray, dear Father, that you would bless our time in your house. Help us, Lord, as we attempt to worship you and to honor you with our lives. Bless our time together and be with Pastor as he speaks. What a miracle. And we pray, dear God, that you would give us grace to hear your word. We ask this in your precious name, Father. Amen. 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 You take your brown hymnal and turn to number two. Number two in the brown.
come on, someone has to favor him. Jolene, thank you. It is well. I don't know what. 493 in the brown. <coughs> it is well. And I know that you just picked it, but just reason. It's a favorite. Oh, it's a good one. Absolutely. <coughs> the piano player may know the number by heart. Doesn't ever have to look it up. <coughs>
Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis, the 14th chapter, and we'll be reading 13 through 24, page 20 in the Pew Bible. When you find your position, please stand with us. <clears throat> Genesis 14, verses 13 through 24. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Enar all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedarlamor and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing of what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Father in heaven, may you bless these holy and inspired words to the heart. In the name of Christ, amen. We take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 26. Number 
Our text this morning is Genesis 14. Before I became sick, uh, we were doing a series, or started a series, on the patriarchs. Unfortunately, we only got one or two sermons done, and then I was laid up for many, many weeks. But that being said, in our last study, we pulled the title of the message from a statement the boy David made to Goliath when he confronted him on the battlefield. Goliath came against David with all the weaponry of war, you remember. A spear, a sword, a javelin, and a shield on a helmet. Whereas David had but a shepherd's bag containing five stones and a slingshot. What kind of a contest is this? When Goliath laughed and mocked both David and Israel and defied God, David's response was this. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. So it was, as well, in Abraham's case, wherein he went to war against a federation of four kings with his homemade militia of 318 household servants. Verse 20. Blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. There's no human explanation of how Abraham could beat such a formidable foe. It's just not possible. But Abraham rescued Lot, his nephew. He rescued all the people of Plain Cities who had been captured, along with all their personal belongings and wealth. And we drew out a number of lessons for our time. Number one, when a brother or sister of the faith is in danger, either physically or spiritually, we are to waste no time to come to their rescue. That's without allowing any past tension to limit the quickness of our response. Because we all sin in many ways. Secondly, God allows for even commands, I might say, that going to war for a just cause. Think about this. When an innocent people are being raped or tortured or murdered, when children are being kidnapped and conscripted into hostile armies, are we just to sit by and say, well, it's none of my business? It is our business. Humanity is our business. Whatever just repercussions our brethren reap for their sin our task is to rescue it's to heal it's to restore and not think about well they deserve what they got 
That's a non-Christian way to think. If we really want to think about that, we all deserve what we get, don't we? If we're going to live on that mantra, we're in trouble. Well, in today's study, we want to look at some godly principles that will govern what I'm calling the aftermath of a just war. (coughs) The fallout. First thing to consider is that Abraham acted as a warrior. What right, if any, did Abraham have to go to war against the federation of four kings that came against the cities of the Jordan Plains and sacked them and stole away their goods and their people? We recall that an escaped soldier in the conflict reported to Abraham, verse 13, that his nephew Lot had been one taken captive along with all the other inhabitants of those cities. Okay, so Abraham had a vested interest in this conflict, but it might be argued, Lot is only one man. I mean, think about this. He's only one man, or maybe we'll say one family, involved in this struggle. Does that warrant endangering 318 plus men to go to his rescue. What, apart from him being a relative of Abraham, is so compelling as to jeopardize the lives of so many others to secure his freedom? Just doesn't seem to match. Is this a numbers game? Is this how we determine whether the cause is just or frivolous? I would say this is often the case with nations, and ours is no exception. Even as I speak, just this past week, we learned about Syrian Christians who were kidnapped by ISIS in northern Syria. Their fate is unknown. But I can tell you, if ISIS captured them, their fate is not, does not look good. These men are butchers. No nice way to say it. Some time ago, we heard about 21 who had been captured by ISIS. All 21 were decapitated. And they sent a message signed in blood. And it read, Coming to the nation of the cross. Well, guess who that is? They have their sights set on us. Yes, those very Christians were about to be slaughtered. The news organization Showbat.com reported 
As the blade came to their necks, they all cried out in unison, Ya Rabbi Yasu. Oh my Lord Jesus. The caption by Isis stated, well, these insisted to remain in unbelief. And they meant they were given the option to convert to Islam or die, and every one of them refused. And that's what ISIS meant when they remained in unbelief. Yeah, they remained in their own faith and not willing to become Islamic. The Apostle John envisioned bringing us into the New Testament times. said, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 4. But these horrific events occur, brethren, while the world sits by and does absolutely nothing. That tells you what the world thinks of us as Christians. It's Nazi Germany and the Holocaust all over again. But what was Abram's rationale for becoming involved in the rescue of Lot, apart from him being a nephew? That was true. Well, we got to come to the New Testament to see what Abraham was thinking. And I'm referring to a text in 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, where it reads, He, God, rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul, by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Second Peter 2, verse 7 and 8. So three times Peter calls Lot a righteous man. And although this refers to God rescuing Lot when the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire from heaven, the righteous character of Lot also applies to Abraham's rescue of Lot from captivity by the federation of four pagan kings. Lot was more than a member of Abraham's family. He was a member of God's family and a victim of unwarranted violence. A resident of Sodom and living in the wrong place at the wrong time, yeah, that's true, but nonetheless a citizen of God's household. What is more, he must be considered 
as innocent of any crime against the Syrian state, which comprised the conquering federation of the four kings. Lot had done nothing against the Syrian invaders. This is the basis for a just war. For rising militarily to confront or defeat those who would capture women and innocent children for the purpose of rape and humiliation and training, especially training children to hate and to become part of a warrior culture bent on terror and murder and mayhem. Think about it, it's a repeat of youth, Hitler's youth corps. That's what he did with the brown shirts. He conscripted, he took the kids away from their parents. Sent them to camps. Teach them how to hate, how to kill. The enemy made no distinction for Lot being a righteous man. They afforded him no clemency, no respect for his good character, no leniency for being a person of principle, absent of malice and tyranny. They cut him no slack for any of this. He was treated with the same disregard as the vile Sodomites. Now he was living among them, so they thought he must be one of them. None of the citizens spoke up for him. Isn't that interesting? I mean, why should they? They cared nothing for his righteous character. They're sodomites. He was poorly viewed as a hypocrite. But having said that, Lot was viewed by God as genuinely righteous nonetheless. Though he smelled of hypocrisy. And was not up to Abraham to play judge and jury in regard to Lot. Abraham's course was very clear. Lot, his brother in the faith, was in danger so if Abraham could do anything at all to rescue him, he must try. I want you to think about that. Has some brother offended you in the course of your Christian experience? Done you wrong? So then they get in trouble and we start to think like the world. Well, they deserve what they get. Oh, well, they made their own bed, let them sleep in it. Well, that's to think like the world, isn't it? We have proof of Abraham's just cause for becoming a warrior to rescue Lot in the benediction of Melchizedek, who as priest of God Most High, verse 18, blessed Abraham, verse 19, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. 
Let me tell you, there's, <laughs> there's no higher indication that what Abraham did as a warrior was approved by God. But not only approved, but enabled by God's own personal intervention. That's as why Abraham, with but a small force of servant soldiers, was able to defeat the armies of four king federation. Sometimes you've got to dig a little deeper to find out what in the world's going on. Well, when it came to dividing the spoils of war, the truism of every battle victory is this. To the victors belong the spoil. Right? We hear that all the time. After World War I, the Treaty of Versailles required, let me read it for you, Germany to accept the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage, end quote, during the war. And the other members of the Central Powers signed treaties containing very similar articles. This article, Article 231, later became known as the War Guilt Clause. The treaty forced Germany to disarm, to make substantial territorial concessions, to pay reparations of certain amount to countries. Same after World War II. I mean, it's not like Germany learned anything. After World War II, the Paris Peace Treaty were signed on 10th of February, 1947, as the outcome of the Paris Peace Conference, held from 29th of July to the 15th of October, 1946. And the victorious wartime Allied powers, principally the United States, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and France, negotiated the details of peace and a treaty with Italy, Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Finland following the end of World War II in 1945. And the settlement elaborated in the peace treaties, including payment of war reparations, committing commit to minority rights and territorial adjustments, including the end of the Italian colonial empire in Africa, Greece, and Albania, as well as border changes in Germany. They really sucked it to Germany, especially on this second time. And the rationale behind such reparations was this. You cause this trouble, Germany. You are responsible for huge losses of life and property. And so now you're going to have to pay. Now, it's a little difference in Abram's case with the four king federation that he defeated because in the defeat, verse 16 says, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, which were sizable, by the way, together with the women and the other people. So there's no treaty involved. The Four King Federation had been soundly defeated, pushed all the way back to Hobah. That's north of Damascus, if you check your Bible map. 
And Abraham had recovered all the prisoners, all their possessions, which he now returned to Sodom. Different situation. Verse 21 says, The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. King Bera of Sodom was simply following the protocol of the day for reparations. He and the king of Gomorrah fled when the battle became hot and heavy in the valley of Sedan, verse 10. Thus they escaped from being captured. So Abram did not have to rescue them, and they were not involved in the recovery effort of Abram. But King Bera was willing to pay Abram for his well-fought victory. It was only fair and right. It was the right thing to do. But I want you to observe Abram's response to King Bera's offer. Verse 21 and following. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you. Not even a thread or the thong of a sandal so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. He goes on, I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Abner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them have their share. Verse 22 and following. So this is a man whose cause is just, whose motives are pure, whose analysis of the victory takes no credit for himself. Verse 22. I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. That's a verbatim quote from Melchizedek, verse 19, which means that in Abraham's own eyes, he knows full well that it was God Most High who delivered the Syrian Federation of Kings into his hands. So he's not about to take payment for something he didn't do in his own strength. It's a remarkable thing when you think about it. But there's yet another issue here. If he did take reparations from King Bera of Sodom, it wouldn't be long before Bera would be boasting that those payments are what made Abraham rich and powerful. That's kind of the politics of things, right? Thus the attention would be turned away from God's grace to Abraham for the victory, crediting him instead of the alleged generosity and oversight of God. The king of Sodom would get the glory that belonged to God alone. What I'm saying in all of this is there, there is no partnership here between Abram and Bera. 
bear has to know that. You're not going to be able to say, I made Abraham rich. We're not in this together. I'm subject to God's leadership. The warning of the Apostle Paul centuries later is veritable truth here in this situation. Here's what Paul writes. He'll find us at 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have in darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following. In other words, Abraham was not about to partner with King Bera for fear that too much credit would accrue to the king of Sodom. And the Lord Most High would be relegated to a lesser and insignificant role. Abraham had not gone to war for what he could get out of it. No, no. hymn of Francis Havergal says a similar thing. Havergal writes, Not for weight of glory, nor for crown and palm, enter we, the army, and raise the warrior's psalm. But for love that claimeth lives for whom he died, he whom Jesus saveth, By thy love constraining, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. And then consider that Abraham's was a just fight. Reason for Abraham to take up arms and pursue the federation of Syrian was simply his natural affection for Lot. Does that justify or make just his going to war? Surely not, for to do so would mean little more than a man taking the law into his own hands because his relative had been unfairly treated by a neighbor. We have laws for such occasions. We have policemen and judges and courts, assuming that such are not themselves abusing their office or their power. There's no way we can point, 
rather paint this move by Abraham as a personal vendetta. There's another reason. In chapter 13, we learn that Lot began his downward spiral through his greedy choice of the entire Jordan Valley for his homestead, even though not a plot of that land belonged to him. You remember that. And it was on that occasion that God encouraged Abraham, chapter 13, verse 14 and following, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Genesis 13, verse 14 and following. I think he needed to hear that, because old greedy Lot had just chosen the entire Jordan Valley. It is this promise of God that Abraham was received from God to fight for what was his by God's grant. His taking up of arms was a move of faith. And if we think, well, there's no way Abraham can successfully go up against a federation, Abraham's courage was equal, uh, equally a matter of faith. Did he not say, I have raised my hand to the Lord God. Thought of his servant militia as strong enough to win war. By faith, he looked to God to win the war. Not his puny forces. We'll say 318 men. That's pretty, that's pretty sizable group. Well, not against four kings and their appropriate armies. I don't know how many men were in each one of those armies. 318 men, servants, that Abraham had. You see, Abraham was lord of the land by divine fiat. Now he must act as the... 300... 18 malicious servants to aid his cause. God would intervene. God must intervene. If he didn't intervene, God himself would be disgraced. And when God grants the victory, Abraham dare not in good conscience gloat over his achievement nor avail himself of the spoils of war so he doesn't take them. No, he has to lay down his arms, walk back into his life of shepherding sheep and raising cattle. God had been his savior, and this he knew right well. Someday we'll know how many soldiers were in those armies of those four kings. But I'm sure it made Abraham's 318 servants 
look puny in comparison. Robert S. Candish, a Scottish minister, gives this excellent application of Abraham's actions. He writes, this history is exemplary in a high degree. The brotherly kindness of the patriarch, his disinterestedness, his heavenly-mindedness are exhibited in this transaction for a pattern to us. Whatever power we have, let it be used. Excuse me. Let it be used for our brother's deliverance. Wow. For doing good to all, especially to such who are of the household of faith. Let all suspicion of covetousness or of selfish ends be carefully excluded in all other undertakings. And in the height of earthly triumph, let it be seen that we can forego the tempting price and live still as strangers and pilgrims seeking a better, that is, a heavenly country. He's commending Abraham for not taking any. That's not where Abraham's, <laughs> that's not where his heart is. He's looking for something better. We should be looking for something better too. Now consider some of these <clears throat> lessons for our time. Number one, because God is the creator, excuse me, the grantor of all blessings received, our thanksgiving demands a sacrificial response. Who heard about the capture of righteous Lot from Sodom? While well, Abram, by way of an escapee in the battle, mustered an army of militia to rescue Lot. Again, Abram. Strategy to issue a sounding defeat to the four kings federated Verse 15. Who recovered all the goods belonging to the cities of the plain, along with the women and other people, and returned them all to their homeland? Abraham. Verse 16. <coughs> so, what I'm saying, it was Abram, Abraham. He put his own life in the line. He put the line at his own expense. He refused to take any compensation for his payout. Abram did it all. It was dangerous, laborious, demanding, time-consuming work. Why then do we read, as we do read in verse 20, Then Abram gave him, Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, a tenth, a tithe of everything. What? <laughs> How come God gets a percentage of the spoils when Abraham did all the work? May I say that's the way the natural heart thinks. 
We've already learned that God blessed Abraham with the victory, but couldn't Abraham just say, well, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Appreciated the victory. Let it go with that. You see, there's a lot going on here, not the least of which is a test of Abraham's acknowledgement that it was God's intervention that won the battle. Yes, I'm confident that Abraham expressed some kind of a vocal response of, thank you, God, or I'm so appreciative for the victory. But there is subtlety here that must not be missed. To Bera, king of Sodom, Abraham was careful to make it clear that he had no intention of allowing this pagan king to think rich, so he refused it. He before King Bera and all the other present there that Abraham owed God a gift of gratitude for his divine intervention. It was not Bera who deserved thanks for his proposed generosity. It was God who had delivered, handed over, can I say, these enemies into Abraham's hands. Verse 29. And you and I are no different. We may be the ones who did sweat the sweat, who expended the energy, toiled in the task, but it is as Paul told the Corinthian church, what, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, and Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field and God's building. By the grace of God that he has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on that foundation. Brethren, our giving to the church is not us bribing God to intervene in our lives as needed. Rather, it is giving in a practical way our acknowledgement of His interventions without which we would be impotent and impoverished. And because God's, God grants us victory, it is official thanksgiving. Abraham had his head screwed on right. Bera should not share the golden crown with God. Then I want you to notice that the world always benefits from Christians who live out their faith. When Abram's militia ran down 
He rescued Lot out of their hands along with all his possessions. But that was not all. Verse 16 tells us that along with Lot, all the goods were recovered together with the women and the What other people? The city dwellers of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with their food and all their possessions. Upon Abram's victory, King Barak proposed, Give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. The lesson here is that Christians, wherever they live, are a blessing of God to the general population. Even if there be a multitude of hypocrisy in their lives, and we do have that in our lives, as here in the case of Lot, God's love for his people is so tenacious that he will move heaven and earth to preserve them, and in so doing, there is a residual effect on the people with whom the Christian community I don't know if you knew this, but it's true. So Abraham did not just subdue the Syrian then leave all the other people as captives. While he returned to Palestine with his nephew. He freed Lot, that's true. But God also enabled him to free all the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. They benefited. This is always the case. Jesus put it this way to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. Whoa. What do we know about salt? Well, it makes food taste good. It adds flavor to an otherwise bland diet. All of that's true. But salt is also used as a preservative. Meat, for example, it keeps it from becoming rancid. That's how they preserve meat. They rubbed it down and packed it in salt. God's people have this preservative effect upon a sinful world. Boy, what a high calling. I want you to think on that. Later we by the death angel sent by God. But for now, I just want you to consider that Lot and his family, they dragged their feet in leaving Sodom. They were hesitant to leave house and goods. And in that case of the daughters, their rebellious husbands, but the sun was rising, the day of judgment had come. Lot did not think he could make it to the hills before the rain of fire began. So he
I will not overthrow the town that you speak of, but flee there quickly because I can. reach it. And that is why the town was called Zor. Genesis 19 verse 21. Destruction. Only when he was gone. Then we are told the Lord rained down burning salt Do you ever think of yourself as God preserving your from judgment and destruction? I had to think about this. Wow. When the Christians are gone, when we're gone, there's no reason for God to withhold judgment. The Islamic terrorists, the jihad, of Africa, dozens more, are ignorant of this truth that every beheading, preservative from judgment and opens the window of heaven for God's judgment to be poured out. I would say it this way, when the salt of the earth is no longer present or in the God is free to deal with the unrighteous as their sins deserve. True on a national scope is equally true on an individual basis. In mixed marriages by which a believer is married to an unbeliever, Paul tells us the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his who is the believer. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be uncomfortable. They are holy. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 1 Corinthians 7, 14 and following. What I'm saying is that one reason idea of divorce here again certainly on a much smaller scale the unbeliever
Personal sin is not eradicated because you're married to a believer. Continues, Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. Storing up wrath? Oh, I don't like the idea of that. The only eradication of judgment that is permanent and eternal is repentance of sin. Trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So Paul writes in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation. Simply put, you must have a personal and surrendered encounter with Jesus Christ to be spared. You cannot ride to glory on the coattails of a righteous relative or a righteous It's personal. Continue to harden your heart through unbelief. You say, well, I'm not sure about Jesus. I just have never been able to quite link into that whole spiritual aspect. Okay, but you can pray about it. And you administer them. But you can ask. I pray you will. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Abraham, I pray your blessing upon the truth that we have learned today from his life. Help us to understand a personal relationship with God through your Son is the way of salvation and the only way. Never we'll go to glory and meet you face to face without an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's going to take an eternity in the fires of hell to pay. But, but, there is so, so much worthiness in Jesus your Son, and His cross, His that if we will trust Him as our Savior, we will be spared to come because that judgment has already been meted out on your Son. And we sing it in a hymn, Jesus paid it all, so all to him. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. How are you?
given us a heart to be on the Lord's side. 
There was a time when we were not on your side. Paul talks about us as being the enemies of Christ. We're glad those days are over. We were so stupid and so ignorant, so blinded by the evil one. We thought we had it all by the pleasures of life, the sin of the world, the greed, the selfishness, all of those things. We really were blind. We could not see where all of that lifestyle was leading. The devil, the scripture says, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving lest they see and be saved. He's an evil, evil ruler of darkness. But I thank you, Lord, that the dawn of light, the light of the gospel shone in our hearts because of your grace. If there's any here today that has not yet seen, has not yet come to glory in the light of Christ and his great salvation, Lord, grant them sight today. We remember that when you were on the earth, there were many occasions where blind people just, you know, they hung to the hem of your garment, hoping that you would have mercy on them. And you did. You granted them sight, and it was a physical sight to be sure, but there were those like Lydia of Athens whose sight was restored spiritually. To see our sin and to see our salvation in Christ, that's better by far. Give us that sight, we ask. Change our life as a result. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed.